Hello, I'm Charles Goddard, Editorial Director at Economist Impact, and welcome to this Back to Blue podcast, part of an initiative of Economist Impact and the Nippon Foundation on the Health of the Ocean. This is the third in a series of podcasts about chemical pollution in the ocean. The first looked at the extent and the scale of the problem, the second at the hundreds of thousands of chemicals in existence and how they're regulated, or not as the case may be. But before I come to the theme of the third, let me just mention that Back to Blue has just released our own report on marine chemical pollution, The Invisible Wave, which seeks to raise awareness of what is clearly a vexing and much underappreciated problem. Unlike plastic pollution, which is often visible, chemical pollution is largely unseen. As a result of that, much more difficult still to detect and track in the ocean than plastics, though, of course, no less important or urgent, as the report finds. In this podcast, we will be discussing the problem of pollution and marine chemical pollution in particular in a broader context. One important contention now gaining currency is that pollution is a critical global challenge of a similar order to climate change and to biodiversity loss and that these issues are in many ways now interconnected. So joining me to discuss this, I'm really delighted to welcome Naoko Ishii, Director for the Center for Global Commons at the University of Tokyo and a longtime advocate for the ocean, notably in a previous role as head of the Global Environment Facility. Welcome, Naoko. Thank you. And Pascal Lamy, who is president of the Paris Peace Forum and most recently leading the European Union's mission Starfish 2030, on the future of the sustainable ocean, and more distantly, a former head of the WTO. Thank you, Pascal, for joining us. Good to be with you. Straightforward question. Is pollution, including chemical pollution, which we now know to be everywhere, even in the deepest ocean trenches, is this really an anthropogenic or human-made challenge on a par with climate change and biodiversity loss? Alka. Yeah, thank you, Charles. Yes, I think the science is extremely clear, loud and clear, that uh, this chemical pollution, uh, including marine chemical pollution, is man-made, man-made problem at the global scale. And the scale is actually increasing. So the science is there, but as you mentioned, it's mostly invisible. And that's why that it's a little difficult to draw the attention of the, the people on this issue. However, I think that there is an alarm bell ringing here and there that another we need to really focus on that. That one of the program is that the chemical pollution is really does permeates every aspect of the economic system. So even if that we notice that then here is a program, it's also that then the solution really requires how to cut through this very tangled economic system and address uh, this is a very uh, challenging and uh, issue. I like your image of the alarm bell ringing because I think the alarm bell really should be ringing. And Pascal, can I just come to you and just ask you whether you feel this is a problem that's on a par with climate change and with biodiversity loss? My answer is uh, yes. It is uh, closely linked, like uh, Naoko just said it, uh, to our economic uh, production system. All the negative impacts on ocean, on waters, and we in the starfish mission in Europe call this hydrosphere in order to make sure that we approach this not just from the ocean point of view, 
but also from the sea, from the lakes, from the water tables, we are degenerating our hydrosphere with enormous consequences on human health, on fauna, on flora, and this is a system which you cannot address just by taking one bit. We are the cause of what's happening, and we have, in order to address this issue, to go upstream into how do we dump so much of our chemicals in our hydrosphere. And I think the size of the problem uh, is now appearing, although we probably uh, to know a, a bit more in uh, the way to address it, but I have absolutely no doubt. And it is totally linked to climate change, global warming, and loss of biodiversity. If you take the example of the hydrosphere, a lot of what we dump into the hydrosphere has a negative impact on living systems in the hydrosphere, again, uh, whether fauna or flora. And the way a large part of the reasons why we emit so much CO2 has to do with the way we produce uh, artifacts and with the way uh, we farm uh, our land and sometimes our sea. So no doubt about this in my mind. So I like uh, the thought of the hydrosphere, and it's certainly um, not unique to the European Union, but it is sort of unique in the policy sense that the European Union has decided to draw together both the water systems on land, the freshwater systems, and the water systems in the marine environment. For pollution, and chemical pollution particularly, this is a particularly important perspective. And now, I, I just wonder, I mean, how important is it now that we start to think more holistically about the challenges that we face with pollution? Because uh, we can't just simply look at the freshwater environment and separately at the marine environment, can we? Yeah, no, absolutely right. And I just want to build on the fact that we so um, eloquently uh, developed the fundamental cause of this pollution, chemical pollution, regardless of the, it's in, it's in the river or the water or the, the ocean or land, is so much linked with this our economic system, the way our economic system has developed in the past maybe the hundred years. And that's why that the climate change, biodiversity loss and the chemical pollution really actually share the same root cause. Regardless if it's a water, river, or the land, or the ocean, I think that we need to really take it as a holistic a systemic issue. And again, that I would like to take a view that and, uh, through the major production system, <laughs> like uh, food, like energy, like and, uh, the goods, and we need to take that kind of approach. And uh, that is also the very complicated question that we need to address. Uh, when I was uh, the CEO of the GF, the treaty uh, came into effect is a Mercury, Minamata Mercury Treaty. And then and it was actually that then almost 50 years ago when that the first symptom of the Minamata Mercury Treaty was found in Japan. And it took more than a half century that then for this and the treaty to be enacted. Uh, so that then this also shows that how difficult it is for us, the human being, to address this issue much more systematic way with regulation and the international treaty. So we have quite a long way uh, to go. 
One of the challenges of the Minamata Treaty, and I might come back to this in a second, is that it did take a very long time to put in place, didn't it, as you suggest? But can I just come back, uh, Pascal, to this question of how we can treat marine chemical pollution as a sort of an equal, in a way, of uh, the other anthropogenic challenges out there? Because, of course, we're talking about this emerging narrative of the interconnected nature of all of the anthropogenic challenges, as you've both mentioned. But at the way we deal with this now internationally is in a very atomized way. We look at climate change, we look at biodiversity loss, we look at plastic treaties and pollution, which is just starting to happen now. How do we join these up a little bit more effectively? And is there a good example for in the European Union where this is potentially happening? Well, you're absolutely right. Uh... And I totally agree with Noko that we have to adopt a holistic approach. But that, the reality is that in terms of governance, in terms of public policies, in terms of accountability, this is fragmented. We need to reorganize our global hydrospheric governance. I have no doubt about that. When the, uh, the Institut Jacques Delors, the one in Brussels, will soon publish a set of proposals on this. So we have this, but my view is that it will not happen if you just task a diplomat, good as they may be, to say, please write something that will lead us to a better governance. We need people to engage. We need political, local accountability. And we have in this area of chemical degeneration of the hydrosphere to cross these two lines, first knowledge to awareness, then awareness to action. And the key, in my view, is in the awareness part. And this is what we have observed uh, when we have prepared this uh, big plan, which is now decided to regenerate the European hydrosphere by 2030. The key is when people start understanding that the ocean starts down their sink. The moment people understand that what they put in uh, their sink will go to the ocean one day or another, then they change. Apart from saying, oh, oh, this is terrible, then people start saying, hey, what should I do? And I think this is absolutely crucial. And it's only if we get there, which is why you know, this sort of campaign about awareness is so important. There are other things we know, but there are lots of things we know, but that doesn't trigger action. That's what we need to do. And I think this is absolutely crucial. And the linkage between what I do uh, morning, uh, noon, evening with the state of our hydrosphere is absolutely crucial. I love that thought that the ocean starts down our own sinks. Um, and I want to come to you now, Ko, and just ask for your thought around that. In particular, the question that relates not just to the fact that it's coming down our sink, but in general, chemical pollution is very difficult to track. It's difficult to monitor. It's largely unseen, as we said before. It's invisible, as you said. How do we galvanize people to actually and policymakers as well, because they also have to realize that this is coming down from their sinkers too. Well, how do we galvanize and build momentum in order to start 
taking action on chemical pollution. I love this and the recognition that we treat the ocean as our sink when we just dump it to this and that they think that the ocean can take care of that. My center, the Global Commons Center, and the LAMI, I understand it in a piece on the, the forum, Paris Beer Forum, also take the Global Commons as a very important <laughs> that topic. So we do care about ocean as a Global Commons. The problem of that and this issue is that that the usually global commons don't have a price so that we just take it as a free goods and we just use it as a free. And that's why that nobody uh, takes care of that than the other global commons. And that, that's why we have this program that as far as the carbon is concerned and the, the Charles, you are opening question, climate change and the people started to how to price the carbon that we still don't know how to price the ozone. We still don't know then how to really uh, a price that then the damage caused by um, chemical pollution. That's another one angle that the how to govern this global commons issue. But as you already mentioned, both of you, that then the, the challenge, one of the challenges is invisible and the chemical pollution, chemical travel very fast and actually quite long. So the area causing this problem doesn't necessarily mean that the Nahoya that the pollution really uh, takes place. So how to handle this invisible long travel of the chemical pollution that really requires a very global holistic mechanism to take it and our center recently showed that this another very horrifying fact that in terms of the pollution the environmental footprint in general we that the people who do live in the global north that then take that care of our own domestic backyard but then a lot of the environmental footprint are actually taking place the global south and our life is very much supported by importation of those and the foods and the goods and the fish and we actually ask that the global south to bear a lot of environmental footprint. So how we can really handle this and the disproportionate burden of how to take care of chemical pollution from our own hands. So that's one thing that the entire community needs to really think through, that then how to see this global value chain, the how to make ourselves accountable for this environmental and the pollution footprint. And the very alarming fact from your report is that now the chemical production and the use are rapidly moving to the global south in Asia particularly, so that the Hoya that regulation is much less and the capacity of the enforcement is much less. So we really need to find a way to address this global problem. And I think to add to that point, Naoko, the report does also talk about the way in which the chemicals industry has for decades now really been able to externalize its costs and passing those on to society, often to, to the most vulnerable parts of society. And I wonder, Pascal, if you had any thoughts about, from a governance point of view, how in particular European companies that have moved their production also to other parts of the world, in particular to Asia, how they might be managed in terms of the way in which they ensure production and the use of chemicals is regulated and well looked through. Part of the problem, which is action, and what we have observed in preparing uh, this uh, starfish uh, objective of 2030 to regenerate our European hydrosphere is that there are two streams of action. One, stop dumping chemicals into the hydrosphere. And second, later, or in the meantime, eliminate clean 
regenerate what we've already done as a whole. A lot of that, at least on the stopping part, has to do with regulation. This is the major challenge. We have to regulate products, uh, production systems, production methods, in order to avoid this dumping. And this has a lot to do with transparency, with traceability, which create what Naoko mentioned, which is accountability. So we have to regulate. And of course, if the EU is the only one that regulates, it won't make a lot of sense. So others have to regulate. And this takes us back to the problem of the global governance of this. We need a global approach to this regulation. As we need carbon emissions or carbon pricing, it may be, and this is why I have a personal view that we may have to create a sort of specific track of global regulation as far as chemicals are concerned. And we have a little bit of that appearing here and there, but I think this is the way to go. And unless we do this together and we are enough uh, strong or in capacity to convince poorer countries that uh, do not have the necessary resources to ensure that these production systems uh, will change. It is a global endeavor. I would personally rather advise for a chemical hydrosphere pollution track to be followed globally, whether, for instance, in the G20 or with some sort of connection between UNEP and a series of chemical conventions that already exist in international law, that would be the way to go, in my view. I want to come, Naoko, if I can, to that problem a little bit, that question a little bit later to you. What is the kind of appropriate international mechanism that might force some of this to change? But can I also come to a separate question, which Pascal, I think, hinted at there, and that is that on the one hand, I mean, I think the regulatory approach is a very European approach. You know, everything is regulated and regulated well from the top. And I, I wonder whether that's going to be entirely appropriate everywhere. But I also wonder whether also, whilst regulation is extremely important, I think, there is, in fact, a need for a systemic approach to all of this. And that without industry closely involved in not just uh, self-regulation, but self-improvement and indeed taking opportunities around potentially the sustainable chemistry that's evolving, green chemistry, that we're really not going to make progress. And one of the things that the report says is that actions by the chemical sector present really the most compelling opportunity for us to address marine chemical pollution. Now, how important is it for there to be a, a systemic approach to all of this that involves all of the stakeholders who need to be there? No, I fully agree on that, Lamy. I proposed this uh, the global mechanism, global accountability mechanism, and also Charles that uh, emphasizes the regulation based on my personal experience of what worked on the ground <laughs> that while waiting for this global governance mechanism to really uh, come in and function. Uh, in case of the mercury, 
the small scale artisanal gold mining is the major source of the mercury contamination. You may have seen that in the river and the ocean is contaminated and the mercury at the site of the small scale gold artisanal gold production extraction. The one way to address this and that gigantic program, which is actually starting from the poor community in Latin America of the Africa and through uh, actually the refining that the facility in Europe and then the reaching to the consumption market. <laughs> the either through the more like a production for the watch or the computer, but also some luxurious and uh, thing at the consumer market. The one way to address this issue instantly or actually as soon as possible is to line up those key actors along the value chain and to let them play their part that the industry has its own share to do, but also in the local community, sometimes indigenous community also have to be supported by how to shift more sustainable and healthy or safe environment. It can be only possible through making the market visible that, and how to take those and, and the footprint out of the value chain and each of the, the actor from local community to find uh, the regulation of the government and then the finance that the processing and the production and the consumption should really play its part. And then uh, uh, one hope I see is that then it has a, actually the attraction on the consumption side, because that watchmaker, the computer maker wanna make it clear that the safe, that their value chain is safe and it's not really, you know, harming the people or the land through their value chain. And the particularly the consumption side and the luxurious good really wanna make sure that their value chain is clean. So to bring the every actor together as a kind of the uh, coalition of the willing and make sure that uh, they play their part to extract this uh, mercury out of the value chain. And then uh, if we were able to mobilize the consumption side, the demand side, that will create a good mechanism to actually to work on the ground. That is based on my own experience at the GE. Pascal, can I come back to the global track of regulation you mentioned? There are a couple of potential options here. One is, as has been suggested by a number of groups, a potential sort of science policy interface body, rather like the IPCC, that could be established in order to identify some clearly the problems associated with chemical pollution and with waste. And that is an evidence-based process, which is sorely lacking, but is one approach to it. The other is the approach that's now been taken by the United Nations Environment Assembly, and that is around building a treaty, and specifically a treaty on plastics has just been agreed, at least a negotiation for a treaty on plastics has just been agreed. We do suffer from a lack of evidence, even though we know the problem is serious. So that's that's one question. But we also do seem to need some sort of overarching regulatory process that addresses chemical pollution. What do you suggest is the way forward? You're raising sort of three different issues that each need to be addressed. We first have to address this sort of science gap. And again, moving digital virtual is probably uh, the way to go. Uh, second, we need, and this is part of the problem, to ensure more accountability of production systems. And this has to do with the sort of uh, ESG track, making sure that consumers, uh, shareholders uh, put the necessary pressure 
on uh, capitalists who need consumers and shareholders to make a profit. And whether we like it or not, this is the dominant system. And then we need this sort of global regulatory approach, Charles, which you mentioned. There is very good news, and we don't have that many for the time being, which is the start of the negotiations on a a plastic uh, treaty. There are proposals for an IPPC-like for oceans that would regularly establish the level of science as we do it for climate with the uh, IPCC. So we have a combination of more science in order to raise awareness and then more corporate responsibility action. As a European, I am a big fan of regulation in these areas because you have to level the playing field. If we want companies to compete because we believe it's more efficient in terms of allocation of resources, we need regulations to provide a certain level of competitive leveling of the playing field. That's what we are trying to do in the European Union. And my dream would be that we would do this better globally. Thank you, Naoko Ishii and uh, Pascal Lamy for your fascinating thoughts. We look forward to further progress in this issue. And we do hope that the Back to Blue report will inspire people to start thinking and talking about chemical pollution in the ocean alongside plastic pollution, which is itself enormously important uh, issue to try and resolve. Zero pollution, I think, is is what we all need to aim for, uh, whether it's plastics or chemicals or indeed any other form of waste that's going into the ocean or indeed, as you say, Pascal, the hydrosphere. Thank you very much. And thank you all for listening. The Invisible Wave, Getting to Zero Pollution in the Ocean, as I said, the report from Back to Blue is available uh, and can be found at backtoblueinitiative.com. Or you can visit the link on the show notes to read the report and access other relevant content from the initiative. You can also access a panel discussion on the Invisible Wave on the World Ocean Summit website. Thank you very much for listening uh, and have a good day.